In Matthew chapter 7, which is our text this morning, so open your Bibles there if you have it with you. Beginning in verse 1, scriptures say, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye where there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. You pray with me and for me as we look to God's word together today. Father, we ask that you would help us to view this text this morning with self-reflection. Not thinking about all the people around us who need to desperately hear this, but realize that we individually need this. So help us to see our blind spots. Help us to see the areas where we are not resting in the gospel, where we are not living grace out. So Lord, we ask that for your glory and for our good that we would see these things and become more conformed to the image of Christ. Be with us now. Help me to say only your words and not mine. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1906, when Ed Johnson, who was a young African-American from Chattanooga, Tennessee, was sentenced to death for sexually assaulting a white woman. However, not everyone was convinced that Johnson was guilty of the crime he had been accused of. And why not? Well, for one, the victim couldn't ID him. The victim was never able to identify Johnson as the attacker. Secondly, within the jury, there was major bias. This was an all-white jury, and at one point in the trial, one of the jury members stood up and was like, you better hope you're sentenced, because if not, I'm coming for you. Not a very unbiased juror box, is that not? And as a result of this, then, when the Supreme Court got wind of it, they halted Johnson's execution, because the evidence just didn't add up. However, For the Chattanooga residents, it absolutely did add up. And they weren't going to be halted by what the Supreme Court said, not for a second. Johnson was guilty, and there was no way they were going to let him get away with it. And so ignoring the Supreme Court's order, a mob consisting of white men, women, and children took this young man up to Walnut Street Bridge, tied a noose around his neck, and hung him to death as they sprayed his body with bullets. All because they were so completely sure that he had done it. They were positive that he was 100% guilty. And so they took it upon themselves to be the judge, the juror, and the executioner. However, they got it wrong. Because years later, two white lawyers proved that Ed Johnson was 100% innocent of the crime that he had been charged with. And the mob had not only wrongly judged him without any authority to do so whatsoever, but they judged him wrongly. And when the Supreme Court, which is the highest court in the land, they found out what happened, they were not happy. And so for the first time in history, they put together a unit to go after these people. They arrested the town sheriff, members of law enforcement, and all of those members in the town who made up that mob 
and they found them guilty of the crimes of wrongful judgment and murder. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus is warning us against the dangers of being like the Chattanooga mob, right? Of judging wrong judgment. For one, you're, you got it wrong a lot. And for two, you don't even have the authority to do so. What gives you the right to judge your brother, as Paul writes, as we just saw in Romans 14? And so Jesus warns us of the danger of Christian vigilantism, right? Vigilante justice, of trying to take matters into our own hands. And if we do take matters into our own hands, the scripture is abundantly clear on this issue. Just like the residents of Chattanooga found out, we will be judged and we will be found guilty. As we've seen so far in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what? He's describing kingdom citizens. He's telling us what it's like to be in the kingdom, what it takes to be in the kingdom, and those who are in the kingdom, what they live like, what they look like. And he's telling us how then we shouldn't look. And so beginning in a new chapter this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, which tells us how kingdom citizens should understand judgment. This should be our view of judgment. And so if you have your Bibles, turn there to Matthew chapter 7, where we will see three things that kingdom citizens understand about judging. And here they are. Kingdom citizens understand that judging others is dangerous, Secondly, it's hypocritical. And three, it's necessary. Why is judging dangerous? Several reasons. But one is this. Have you ever heard the expression, don't judge a book by its cover? You heard that one before? Very common, right? And yet, how often do we judge a book by its cover? All the time. We often draw radical conclusions that we have no business drawing whatsoever based on tiny little bits of information, right? See, there's a little thing, I find out a little bit of information about you, and suddenly I think I have everything I need to pass down the sentence. Have you ever met a person and your first impression was like not even close to accurate of what you thought they were like? Has that ever gotten you into trouble? (laughs) Yeah. Right? Like, I've done this before, right? Where I thought somebody was like, I'm like, man, that person's pretty stuck up and rude. What's with them? And it's like, well, how long did you talk to him for? Well, at least 15 seconds. <laughs> right? And then you talk to him for maybe 15 minutes. You're like, wow, that's like the nicest person I've ever met. I can't believe I got that so wrong. Yet, how many times do we go off of first impressions, right? Off of little bits of information and think that we can judge the whole person right then and there. We see them, we see their heart as God does, but we don't. One of the reasons we shouldn't judge is because we often make wrong, short-sighted judgments. We just don't have all the information. And to act like we do is very, very ignorant. We think, then, that our perception is our reality when that's just our perception, and our perception is often wrong. Have you ever had this happen to you before where you're talking to somebody and there's some conflict, there's some drama, and they're like, you won't believe what happened. Like, oh, really? What? gossip away. Let's hear. And then they tell you everything that happened, and you're like, wow, that person who did that is a scumbag. What a dirtball. And then you end up bumping into somebody else, maybe, who knows that person, or that person themselves, and you hear their side of the story, and then what happens? That person who told me all that, there's something wrong here. One of these people is absolutely 
misunderstanding reality here. Their perception is wrong. Proverbs talks about this. Here's what Proverbs says. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The truth is we all jump to conclusions. We all make assumptions. And often when we do this, they're just flat out wrong, right? And that gets us into trouble. And for a few reasons, but ultimately because wrong judgment has a boomerang effect upon us. You realize that? That's what Jesus is telling us. He's, it's it's kind of like this, what goes around comes around. You're going to judge people wrongly. Well, guess what? That boomerang's coming back at you. And it's going to hit you really hard in the head. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at what Jesus says in verses 1 and 2. He's saying that we shouldn't judge others because if we do, then what? That's the measurement we are going to be judged by. So if you want to go around being all judgy judger, expect that that's coming back at you because it's going to. If you're going to go around and judge people with law, then what are you going to be judged by? Law. Anybody here want to be judged by God's law? (laughs) I don't. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. They thought that would be just fine, right? They went around thinking that they were righteous in God's eyes because they were upholding God's law. They thought they were. And Jesus comes along, and what does Jesus tell them? He says, I tell you this, looking to the crowd before he deals with them, your righteousness has to exceed theirs if you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And they're all like, what? How does that work? And if that wasn't shocking enough, Jesus goes on to show the Pharisees how their righteousness doesn't even come close to matching God's standard of righteousness. Matthew 5, 21 through 22, he says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. However, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, or raka, you will be liable to the hell of fire. And then also, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intentions has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this is coming out of the Old Testament context. And what happened if you committed adultery? You were stoned to death, right? So they're all thinking, wait a minute, we've all done this. Are we all worthy of death, right? Like, how does this work then, Jesus? Who then of us can be righteous? Who then can be saved? None of us can live up to this all high standard of God that you're putting out, in which Jesus' response is, right, you can't. And that's the point he's making. Which is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, verse 17, here's what he says. He says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it, right? That's what he said. He came to fulfill the law. See, a lot of people in our culture think Jesus is like, hey, man, New Testament's all about that judginess and the law and everything, but but in the New Testament, it's just love. You just need Jesus. That's all it is. I couldn't be more wrong. The only reason the law doesn't crush us in the New Testament is because Christ fulfilled it perfectly for us. And so we have one of two options. Either we fulfill that law perfectly, or we look to the only one who can, and we rest in his righteousness. And you know what that's called? That's called grace. That's what what grace is. For in Christ, lawbreakers like you and I can be justified and made right before a holy God which then leads our hearts to then sing of the marvelous grace that we've received. Do you want to know one of the biggest indicators that you haven't actually received that marvelous grace? Suspense, I'll tell you. Hold on. 
It's this. You don't give it to others. It's all for you. It's your precious. You get it. But nobody else, like, no, 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 no. They get the law. That's what they get. You don't measure others by the same standard you claim that you're asking God to measure you by. See how that works? Do you know what we are actually doing when we do this? When we judge others this way, we're actually returning back to law. And Hebrews is like, if you read the book of Hebrews, what does Hebrews say? It's like, don't go back to that. Don't go back to that system. Don't go back to the old covenant. There's no hope in that for you. You cannot be saved by law. And when we judge others like this by law, we are looking to moral obedience as the basis by which God accepts sinners. And if that's the basis by which God accepts us, you know, the whole scale system that every religion out there believes, it's like, hey, believe in God and do more good things than bad, and you'll go to heaven. Things will be great. That's every other religion. Christianity is like, no, it's not going to work that way. You break the law once. You are a murderer at all before God. God will judge murders perfectly because God is a just God. So either you will pay for that crime or somebody else will pay for that crime. And that's what Christ did on the cross. And so when we begin to judge others again by holding the law up and being like, let me tell you, you're not quite as righteous as you should, not like me. I mean, as you should, we're going back to law. And does any of us really want to go back to law? The answer to that better be absolutely not. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. We, shall, we fall short of God's glory, of the glory of God, of, of obeying God's laws we should. That's what that's talking about. Now, wait a minute, preacher. Are you saying that if I judge others, that I'm going to lose my salvation somehow and be judged by God? Can I fall from grace? Is that what we're talking about here? Okay, you've been around here long. You should know not even to ask that question. That's not the case. That's not what we're talking about. We know by now what the Bible says on this. Someone who has been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life doesn't have any chance whatsoever of having a spiritual heart attack. That's not how it works. We weren't saved by our works, which means we don't stay saved by our works. Right? The Bible's crystal clear on this. We are saved completely and entirely by Christ's work. We stay saved and continue to be saved by Christ's work, and we will one day, glorification, be finally glorified and saved by Christ's work. It's grace all the way through. Philippians 1.6, this makes it absolutely clear. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is talking about salvation. This is talking about God, the one who brought us, our spiritually dead corpses, to life, right? You can't make yourself come back to life. This is talking about what God did. And he's saying he's going to keep us. No one can jump out of his hand. We are sealed by God's Spirit, and nothing can unseal that. So then back to the text. Why the warning of judgments? What's going on here? Because there's, there's a warning here, so how do we apply this? How do we make these make sense together? Here's how. There's one of two judgments that are alluded to here that we will fall into. The first one we just mentioned, if you judge everybody by the law, then that's a strong indicator. You've never come to understand grace whatsoever. Yeah, you, you understand up here, you got like demon faith. You understand like, you know, John 3.16, God's love of the world, whoever sent his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, will have everlasting life. You get all that, but it's never actually penetrated your heart because you still treat everybody else with law, okay? So if that's you, you're not actually a born-again Christian. You're not actually saved because you're still haven't come to rest in Christ's righteousness. And if that's you, you're going to one day find out 
just how greatly you fall short of God's law as you stand before the great white throne judgment and are judged and damned to hell by a holy God. It's just the way it is. That's what the Bible says. Secondly, though, there's another kind of judgment, and this is a judgment of believers. It's not the great white throne judgment. This is called the Bema Seat of Christ. And this is not a judgment of eternal destiny, but one of eternal reward. Does that make sense? It's not of eternal destiny. You can't lose your salvation. This one is for God's people. This is of eternal reward. We're going to stand. We're going to give an account for every idle word even. That's terrifying a little bit, more than a little bit, right? Like that's, that's this judgment seat that, that Christians need to be aware of. Let me show you this because there's a lot of people, like there's not a lot, but there's enough out there who just totally ignore this fact. And this is something we can't ignore. Because the idea is, hey, you know what? If we talk about Bema seats and judgments for Christians, then that's getting back in the law. It's like, no, it's not, actually. All right, let me show you this. Romans 4, 14, 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will what? All stand before the judgment seat of God. That's not talking about unbelievers, right? Right? Two people are with me. It's not talking about unbelievers. It's just not. It's talking about believers. Another passage, Second. Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This does not undo the fact that we are a grace-preaching church who rests in Christ's righteousness, not our own. These fit together. They absolutely fit together. We must never then forget that there are always eternal consequences for this life. There are absolutely eternal consequences for this life. And this is one of the reasons, then, that we are very slow as a church of putting people in positions where they can bring upon themselves severe eternal consequences, even at the beam of seat of Christ, right? So James 3, 1, what does that say? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be what? Judged. Same word. With greater strictness. So when it comes to eternal judgment... We've got two options. We've got the Bema seat. We've got the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be at the great white throne judgment, so you better not measure yourself and then everybody else by law. But if you have come to grace and understood the gospel, you don't want to measure people by law self-righteously because there's consequences for this. There's, there's eternal rewards at stake here. Hebrews 12.6 says this. This one's a little bit more punchy. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Discipline is a part of the program here. It absolutely is. There are eternal consequences. In a little bit here, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And in that passage, what does it say about Christians who continue to live wrongly, who continue to live in their sins and not confess their sins? What does it say? Here's what it says. Let each person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And here's the warning. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, okay, with, without taking sin into account, right? That's the context here of this passage. What do they do? They eat and drink judgment on himself. And here's how this manifests in this life, right? This isn't even just the beam of seat of Christ. This is the, this world, okay? Because if I don't know about you, but if I'm like, ah, oh, well, that's just crowns in heaven. I don't really understand what that's going to be like. Out of mind, out of sight. No, this is talking about this life. Look what he says. That is why many of you are weak and many of you are ill and some have even died. However, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. It's saying when you come to the Lord's Supper, right, when, as you do your Christian walk, you got to take sin seriously. 
Sin has consequences. Yeah, if we're in Christ, it doesn't have eternal consequences for our eternal destination, but it does for this life and our eternal reward. So then, with this in mind, let me ask you a question. What does it take to look at another believer in Christ and judge them? What does that take? What do you, what do you have to be thinking? Okay, well, James, half, which is Jesus' half-brother, here's what he says. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And look at, look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See what James is saying? James is saying, get off of God's throne. He, there's one judge, there's one law and one lawgiver, there's one throne, there's one judicial program here, and God is the one who sits there. And so James is telling us that when we self-righteously judge our fellow servants in Christ, we're actually committing divine mutiny. We're trying to overthrow God's throne. And how did that turn out for Satan? Not so well, right? Jesus is saying, we are just like the Chattanooga lynch mob who said, you know what, Supreme Court? I got a better law. Our law. I got better justice. Our justice. That's what we're doing when we take God's law, God's justice, into our own hands and judge our fellow believers. When we judge, we sit upon God's divine throne and say to the sovereign Lord of the universe, this is my role. Step aside. What a foolish thing to do. For that is only God's job to do. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And that judge is not you, and that judge is not me. So stop judging. Get off God's throne. Because if you try to do so, not only are you usurping God's authority, but what does Jesus say you are? He says you're a raging, flaming hypocrite. That's the next point he goes to, right? Leads us to our second point. Kingdom citizens understand that judging others is dangerous, but it's also, secondly, hypocritical. Look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Sarcasm's in the Bible, everybody. Embrace it. (laughs) A spiritual gift. All right? Jesus' illustration here is actually hilarious, right? Like, it's funny. Like, you think about it. You got somebody who's got this massive log, like they're like bumping into stuff, right? And they're trying to like, oh, let me help you with that little piece of dust in your eye. Let me get that out there for you. He's pointing out for us the blatant hypocrisy and self-righteous judgment of one sinner over the next. See, here's what we do. You know what the worst sin is? You know what the worst sins are? Let's go sins. What's the worst sins? Whatever ones I don't struggle with. Yeah, maybe I used to struggle with them, but that was like really long time ago. I was really, I was really young and dumb back then. But I don't anymore. I know that was last week, but things have changed, you know? Like, totally different now. And to think this way, you know what it takes? It takes self-righteousness, which, if you think about it, is the only sin, if not repented of, will damn you to an eternal hell. Don't get me wrong, Christians, we, we fall into this sin. That's not going to damn us to hell. But I'm saying, if you don't repent ultimately and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is his robes of righteousness for my filthy ones, that exchange, if you don't ever embrace that, 
that sin of self-righteousness will absolutely damn you to an eternal hell because you are trying to measure up to the law. And what does Jesus say about that? If you're going to try to obey God's law, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. How much so, Jesus? Well, if you look at a woman and lust after, you're guilty. You're on the chopping block. Right? Like, it's not going to work. The truth is, then, we are all (coughs) sinners who can only be saved by the grace of God. You remember what James and John, the sons of thunder, said after uh, that little Samarian town rejected Jesus? Like, hey, Jesus, did we get to call down fire on them now? What does Jesus say to them? What's he say? Sit down and be quiet, <laughs> more or less, right? He's like, no, you don't. Because here's the thing, James and John, if we start calling down fire on sinners, that's going to hit you too right now, and you don't want that, right? They totally didn't understand this. So Jesus rebukes them for it. You know, one of the fastest, if not the fastest way to destroy a gospel-believing church? Start getting all judgy-judger and self-righteous towards each other. That will burn this building down faster than gasoline and matches. Start going around self-righteously, looking down on people, right? That can even be your spouse, by the way. Is that going to cause problems in marriage? It absolutely is. Go around and start looking down upon people. When people come in here and it's like, oh man, they don't, they're not here that much. They must not love Jesus like I do. You know, like, just start thinking that way. Start thinking self-righteously. Start comparing them to yourself and see what that does to the church. It destroys a church. Instead, what we should do is look at one another regardless as ultimately being saved saints, not as sinners. Because that's what we are. In Ephesians 1, what does is, what is Paul address Christians as? Saints, right? And there's others out there who will tell you that saints are like a special status where it's like, man, you're a super-duper Christian. I mean, like this is, this is like, you know, professional Christian stuff. No, every Christian who is in Christ is a saint, every single one. That's why the Scripture refers, when Paul's writing to people, he calls them saints, right? Because that's what they are. They're not sinners. Yeah, they still sin, but that's not their status before God anymore. They are saints, And so this is what this means. Every single one of us who has been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ is viewed by God as being just as perfect as if they've never sinned. That's what justified means. It's just as if you've never sinned. And even more than that, God views you as he views Christ, his one and only son, who is perfection, who is beauty itself. That's how God views us who are believers, who are followers of Jesus, right? And so that... I don't care if you're the most nominal, weak, pathetic, spiritually smelly, lazy Christian in this church. Before God, you are a holy saint. You are perfected. You are as spotless as you could ever be because of Jesus' one and only Son. God's one and only Son. Let's not speak heresy here. Because of God's one and only Son. You believe that. When you look at other Christians, because here's the reality, like every church they've got, like we don't know, but God does, there's always one Christian who's like, man, that's the worst of all the Christians when it comes to being a good Christian, right? That's just the reality. You got people up here, you got people down there. But all of them before God are viewed as 100% spotless. And so here's the question I have for you. If you're one of the Christians who is up here, or maybe you just think you're up here and you're deluded, but if, you, if, you, if you're more spiritually mature, when I tell you that, does that give you spiritual heartburn at all? Does it make you think, well, wait, that's not very fair. I worked really hard. I come every Sunday. I'm here for fellowship and focus, and, 
Even when it spins into rabbit trails, I don't go to sleep. You know, like, I, I do stuff around here. You're really telling me God loves that person as much as me? I'm just as righteous? Like, that's not fair. And if we think that way, what are we doing? We're returning to law. We're returning to being justified, not by grace, but by works. And here's the reality. If we stood here today and we all tried to, let's say, take a rock and throw it and hit Lake Superior, I might get a little closer than you, but none of us are even close. Right? That's what, the, that's what we're doing. How silly. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this. This is for us who think we're spiritually mature, right? What, for, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? See, if we aren't careful, we can start thinking our job is to be each other's Holy Spirit. Because, like, hey, Holy Spirit, I mean, God's not doing the judging thing right up there, so you're not doing the convicting thing right, I'll take over both roles. Right? But do you see how hypocritical this is? We're going around making a huge fuss about the tiny specks that we see in someone else's eye while we have a massive log in our own. And listen, don't like zone in for this part because you need, you need to get this part. This is important, okay? If anything qualifies as a log when it comes to sin, it's this. What is it? Self-righteous legalism. Is that not the biggest log of any log we could come up with? self-righteous legalism, to look at the cross of Christ, to look at what Christ had to suffer, the blood he had to bleed in order to make me righteous, and think, ah, I'm actually better than that. I, I, don't, I don't really need that. Right? That's a log, if anything's a log. And yet, what do we do? You see what they wore to church? You know what they eat and drink? Do you see the Bible translation that they use? I'm caught dead with that thing. And for the record, I'm not saying you can't have opinions about those things. That's not what we're talking about. Having an opinion about something is not the same as judging somebody. It's a massive difference here. We all have opinions on those things, and that's perfectly fine. What I'm saying is, though, is that if the Bible doesn't say it, don't come and judge your other believer by it and hold them to it. Who are you to set up a law upon them? Who are you to be their master? You're not their master. Christ is their master. The other thing, too, is even when the Bible does say it, and it is explicitly clear, that never gives us a license to kill, which is exactly what legalism is. And so when it comes to hypocritical, log-in-the-eye, judgy legalists, have you ever noticed something about them? They can dish it all day long, but the second you put some back in their way, what do they do? They throw a tantrum like a kid at the supermarket who didn't get the candy. (laughs) Well, how do, how do you know who I am? Why do they respond that way, though? Think about it. Because they're all up in the, in, in the legalistic system. Their self-righteousness is tied to their behavior. So when you come along and you're like, hey, you know, thanks for rebuking me most of the time, some of the time. But I got to tell you something. You got some sin here. What do they do? They freak out. Because their, their worth, their self-worth, their, their righteousness is actually in the law. That's why people who are this way typically respond with panic attacks. One more comment before we move on here. We all have to be careful of this. Anybody here know somebody who's a little bit legalistic? Everybody put their hands up. If we're not careful, what do we do about people who are legalistic? What do we end up doing? 
being judgy and legalistic about those who are legalistic and judgy. <laughs> Oops. And so, church, we have to be so careful here. Do you ever find yourself, here's another thing, do you ever find yourself pleased when you hear about the sin of another believer? Do you ever find yourself happy when some believer or somebody you know who has really wronged you in the past, like, faces the consequences of their behavior? It's dangerous ground. I've been there. It's, I, I get it. It's, it's hard not to at times, right? Because it's so easy to return to the law thing. How about this? Do you ever find satisfaction in pointing out the wrong beliefs of others? And do you even take joy in mocking them? Y'all know my spiritual gift is sarcasm. I've told you that already today and several hundred times. But here's the thing. Well, a proper use of sarcasm, which is actually called satire, can be extremely effective at making a point, as Jesus is actually using right here. This is, this is, he's using satire here. That's what he's doing, right? The log in your eye versus speck. One of the major dangers of using it is that it can open up our hearts to self-righteousness. I start to think how clever I am, right? I start looking down on the person that I'm posting the memes about, right? Even if it's somebody I don't know, right? Like these false teachers. Like, I get it. It's easy to do this. No longer are we concerned then about warning people of that false teacher. Instead, it's simply about feeling good about poking them in the eye. It feels good to push them down, you know, to use the old psychobabble stuff, to push them down to pull myself up, right? Right? That's, that's what we're doing. Do we have time for a C.S. Lewis quote this morning? Trick question. We always have time for a C.S. Lewis quote. This one stings a little bit. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not quite be true or not quite as bad as it was initially made out to. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that? Or is it a feeling of disappointment and even determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible? If it is the second then it is, I'm afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish that black was a little blacker. If we give that wish its head, later on we shall wish to see gray as black and then to see white itself as black. Finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, God and our friends and ourselves included, as bad and not being able to stop doing it. We shall be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. That's scary stuff. Because if you've examined your heart, I trust you've found that in there at times. It's there. Instead of hateful, hypocritical attitudes towards others, what attitude are we to have? The attitude of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, the love chapter, makes it abundantly clear what our attitude is supposed to be. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. doesn't brag or boast, right? Like, look how great I am compared to you all. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And the Lewis quote summarized right here, it does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. Always. It's not looking for any possible reason to condemn somebody. Right? That's not what love does. And so the question I have for us, church, is this us? Is the love chapter here, does this define how we treat one another? Does this define how we treat even erring Christians? Christians who aren't quite living like Jesus as they ought, who will, as we just talked about a little while ago, stand before the bema seat of Christ and suffer punishment for that as loss of rewards, right? That's between them and Christ. But is that between me and them in terms of me judging them? Absolutely not. Are we going around concerned about specs when the log of legalism remains in our own eye? Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. A heart that appreciates the grace that it has received will naturally extend that same grace towards others which then and only then allows our judgments to not harm but to help. For grace-filled judgments, and this is our last point, are absolutely necessary for a church to be strong and healthy. <clears throat> Kingdom citizens understand that judging others is dangerous, it's hypocritical, and third, it's necessary. Verse 5 says, You hypocrite, take the, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This actually triggers me a little bit, because we don't have more time to deal with these verses than I'd like. And that's a challenge, because verse 6 is especially a challenging verse. There's a whole lot of con- like ideas out there on what it says, and a whole lot of bad ideas out there on what it actually means. But whatever, we're going to do the best we can here. Now, If we had stopped at just verse 4, we would be in some massive trouble as a church, right? Because we'd be going around just like our culture who loves to quote the first part of verse 1. Hey, man, judge not, bro. Peace. You know, that kind of of attitude. We'd be like, you don't get to talk to me ever about my sin. Back off, buddy. You hypocrite. (laughs) That's how we would be. But the Bible is crystal clear. We have to judge each other. But not how, as everything we just talked about. Not with a self-righteous, legalistic, holding ourselves up as the standard of purity spirit. It's not with a self-righteous, legalistic, hypercritical spirit that we judge each other. We judge each other with grace and with love. And think about this. What does 1 Timothy 3 tell us about pastors? We just love them and not care how they're, they line up to the qualifications of a pastor? Absolutely not. What about deacons? Well, you know, they're, they, they really got a good heart. They do a lot. I know that, I know that they're, they're, they're basically drunk or, you know, that they're beating their wife, whatever, right? Like, their family's mess. No, you hold each other to these standards, right? You hold pastors to the pastoral standards. You hold deacons to the, de- the standard of deacon. You hold teachers to the standard of teachers. And if you don't, you're liable for that as a church. You have to hold people accountable. And if you're going to do that, what does that mean you have to do? Judge. How do you know if I'm accountable or not? If I'm living up to the pastoral qualifications, you have to examine my life, right, and try to make righteous judgment. 
you have to make a, de- a determining call. And the same thing goes for church discipline, right? Praise God we haven't had to do it yet around here, but if churches are faithful and biblical and a Christian errs into sin and they refuse to confess it, refuse to repent and turn from their sin, what are churches supposed to do? Begin the process of church discipline, which eventually leads to excommunication, right? It's not a fun thing to do, but it's a loving thing to do. And in order to do that, you have to judge. You have to compare their behavior to God's righteous standard. Now, before we pull this all together, look at verse 6. It's the tricksy verse. It's got dogs, it's got pearls, it's got pigs. What is this verse talking about? It's a hard verse. This one, like, there's a keep you up at night verse. I'm like, what? Jesus, what? Let's just skip it. No, we're not going to skip it. it. See, here's how I think this works. In the Bible, there's actually, a, I'm giving you the super simplified version here, but pigs and dogs, what are they considered? Unclean, right? Like, you didn't have, very often, you didn't find Jewish pig farmers, right? You just didn't, right? And, and dogs, yeah, some people had dogs for pets, but like, dogs were like kind of roaming, wild, vicious, nasty, nasty critters, which I still think they are, but whatever. Um, just kidding, I love your dog. Anyways, but you get the idea here, right? And what does it take then in order to identify somebody as a dog or a pig? Judgment calls, Right? Now, what about the pearls? Okay, what's it saying you know, about casting pearls before swine? What is he talking about here? Well, in Matthew, there's another parable that the kids sang about last week, which is Matthew 13, and the parable of the pearl of great price. And so, taking that with the context here, I think what Jesus is talking about is that the pearl is speaking of the kingdom's immense worth. Right? It's like a The kingdom is like a man who found a pearl hidden in a field and he sold all he had to gain it because he saw its immense value. He saw the beauty of the kingdom, right? He went after it. It was his heart's desire. So I think pearl is kingdom value here, okay? And so here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying, yes, absolutely do not judge one another with self-righteous legalistic judgment. Instead, judge with righteous judgment. Judge with grace, with humility, not seeing yourself as the divine standard of perfection. And so practically, here's what Jesus is saying here. Yes, we are to come to others and offer rebuke at times, right? We are to share the gospel with others. That's believers, that's unbelievers alike. However, what if we run into somebody who's got a doggish or piggy nature? Do we just have to keep, come on, you got to love this thing. You got to see how beautiful this pearl is. No. We see that with Jesus, with, uh, with Herod. What did he do before Herod? He's like, I'm not talking to you. You see that with, with Paul. He's like, all right, Jews, you don't want this? You don't want the pearl of the gospel? I'm going to take this to the Gentiles. Now, be careful with that, because we don't want to be like the Jehovah's Witnesses who are like, hey, do you want to become a Jehovah's Witness? No, not talking to you ever again. Write them off. Check off their house, right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're simply talking about having wisdom, okay? So before we get to that, let me ask you, what is the only thing that pigs care about? Eating food and becoming a big old fat pig. <laughs> That's all pigs want to do, right? And so if you're like, hey, pig, check out these pearls, what are they going to be like? No, I don't want it. You know, like, they don't want anything to do with it. All right? And so we have to be discerning. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Yes, don't judge others wrongly. 
Practice righteous judgment, but be discerning, have wisdom, have grace in how you approach people. And this has a lot of application. For one, right, like we don't just come up and be like, hello, I would like to tell you today how you can be saved by our Lord, Savior, and Jesus Christ. Would you like to believe and say the prayer after me? Like, don't do that. That's weird, and it's not helpful, and it's not going to be received well. Right? It doesn't work that way. We have to get to know people. We have to engage in the gospel. We have to show grace to those who have piggish and doggish behaviors, characteristics. We gracefully judge the person and the situation in order to respond wisely. And quickly here, Proverbs 26, here's one of the best examples of this thing. Verse 4, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, wait a minute. Was the author of Proverbs drinking here? Like, what's going on? Like, why? Like, which is it? This is like a blatant contradiction, is it not? No, it's not. We absolutely, at times, must not judge a fool according to their folly, lest we be like them in yourselves. They drag us down into the mud, like pigs like the mud. You know, dogs like to return to their vomit. The scriptures talk about that. Sometimes they're just like, all right, you know what? You're clearly not interested in in having an actual conversation about the gospel. You just want to one-up me with this little intellectual chest and, you know, kind of get these zingers in. I'm not going to sit here and keep casting pearls before swine. And so we back off. But other times, right, like unbelievers, what do they need us to do? Answer their foolishness, or even believers at times, according to their folly, so that they can see the foolishness and not be wise in their own eyes and thinking that their foolishness is wisdom. So how do we know what the difference is? When to do verse 4, when to do verse 5? The answer to that is wisdom. That's the difference. Sometimes we do one, sometimes we do the other. We need wisdom. We don't simply argue with people to win the argument. We don't argue with them to one-up them so that we can feel more intelligent or morally superior. No, we use wisdom and discernment to judge others, to use God's grace to use wisdom, to use our intellect in order to hold the pearls that we have with respect and and to dignify them, right? And here's the thing. What is the ultimate pearl that we treasure and hold dear? Christ. Christ is the ultimate treasure. And because Christ is the ultimate treasure, we don't dare wrongly judge with a self-righteous legalistic attitude because we're not at that point casting pearls before swine right we're not even trying to get pearls to see their to see people to see their need for pearls what we're doing is we're, we're actually casting the god like the, the law back before them like hey you know what i don't think jesus is that great you know what you need more law see the problem here however when jesus is our treasure We wouldn't dare judge with a self-righteous legalistic attitude. Why? Because why would we ever need to? I don't need to convince myself anymore that I am more righteous than you all because that's not the basis of my righteousness anymore. I don't need to do it. Like, it doesn't matter, right? Like, I can throw the rock a little closer to superior than you can, but I'm going to go with what Jesus can do, who he can actually hit superior, right? He nails the law perfectly, and that is given to me as righteousness. And so when Christ is your righteousness, and only when he is your righteousness, can you finally stop judging others and love them as Christ loved you. 
When Ed Johnson stood there on the bridge with the rope around his neck, moments before the crowd enacted their unjust judgment upon them, he looked at the crowd and he said, I am innocent. God bless you. And then they hung him and riddled his body with bullets. Now, how could he say this? How could he not pass judgment on them when they were in the very act of killing him? Because Ed knew he was a murderer at heart. Ed knew, apart from the righteousness of Christ, he was just as guilty. And so he could say this to his enemies as they killed him because he had been radically saved by the wonderful grace of God, which led him to no longer look at his works anymore, but to look at the righteousness of Christ, the grace of God, which leads our hearts to then sing, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Father, we thank you for this passage this morning. Parts of it were quite difficult, but we praise you for it and for the understanding that you give us. Father, I pray for the one here today who is still resting in their works of righteousness. Help them to see that's filthy rags. That cannot possibly save them. Help them to see the beauty of Christ, who is the ultimate pearl. And help that to change the affection of their heart to desire Christ above all things. And may they come by grace through faith to rest in Jesus as their Savior. And Father, we pray for us as Christians as well, Lord, that we wouldn't judge one another with a self-righteous, haughty attitude, but that when we do have to rebuke, that we would do so trembling with fear, realizing that we're sinners too. Help us not to do so hypocritically, but recognize that everything we have has been given. And so if there's an area of sin that I don't personally struggle with, Lord, help me to give you the glory and the honor for that not to get big-headed and start to look down at others around me and judge them with a self-righteous, hypocritical attitude. And so may we as a church be protected from this, help us to grow in our grace and understanding of the gospel, and we give all the praise and glory for it. And help us now as we approach the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.